all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 326 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the BMW episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that uh, BMW produced a medium-sized sedan between 1936 and 1941, and again briefly under Soviet control after 1945, that BMW was known as the BMW 3. 26. And with that wonderful little bit of classic car knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident sunny employee. I only drive B&W 328s. Ah. Well, just wait a couple weeks then. Yeah. <laughs> this is Tim. <laughs> uh, it's funny that you mention BMW because... Have you ever met one of those very materialistic girls that are just, or women, I guess, that are just absolutely awful human beings? Well, yeah, of course. Everybody has. And if you haven't, and you're a woman, it's probably you. (laughs) Yeah, there's this one uh, who, I'm not going to say if uh, she works where I work or not, but uh, she found out I drove a 2002 Hyundai Accent, and she goes, Oh, I... I cannot be associated with anybody who drives, what what was this, a 2002 Hyundai Accent? Oh, gross. Anything older than 2013 is just an old car. And I was telling a guy who I work with about this chick, and a week or so ago, he was at the bar, and she was there. She came up and was hanging out with a group of his friends, and she asked him, So, Eric, what kind of car do you drive? Oh, well, I uh, I drive a... BMW. Oh, what kind of BMW? Oh, I drive the BMW, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Oh my god, that's C-Class. Oh, oh, C-Class. Awful human being. I, I guess I'm not cool enough as a C-Class, like the baseline or something? I have no idea. I drive a 2002 oh. Hyundai <laughs> Accent. I am not... <laughs> I, I don't know much about the different classes of BMWs. I don't, is there a, a D-class? I mean, what's worse than a C-class? I have no idea. I guess we'll just be those losers who will never know. And that's okay with me. That's fine. I don't care. Fair enough. So, I know you have some stuff you wanted to talk to us about, though. We don't have a... Uh, we, we only have our special Copycat Throwdown segment this week. But I know that some things have happened you want to tell us about. What What's going on, Tim? Yes, well, two pieces of news broke um, in the past couple days. First off, I have an R.I.P. Seymour Castle familiar face in Cassavetti's films dies at 84. This article here is from thehollywoodreporter.com, written by Dwayne Burge, posted on uh, April 8th. And it says this. Seymour Castle, the Oscar-nominated John Cassavetes regular whose wily glint, weathered look, and versatile talent made him an admired character actor, has died. He was 84. Castle died Sunday in Los Angeles of complications from Alzheimer's disease, his son Matt told The Hollywood Reporter. Castle also was a favorite of Wes Anderson, who cast the actor in Rushmore, The Royal Tenenbaums, and The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Castle first teamed with Cassavetes during the making of The Improvisational Shadows from 1959. 
On Cassavetti's directorial debut, he started out as an unpaid crew member, but was given an uncredited on-screen role and then an associate producer credit by the future icon of independent cinema. Castle received his Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of the hippie swinger Chet in Cassavetti's Faces from 1968, then reveled in the role of the free-spirited, ponytailed parking attendant Seymour Moskowitz in Mini in Moskowitz from 1971, which Cassavetti's directed and wrote specifically for his wife, Gina Rollins, and his pal. Cassavetes also directed Castle in Too Late Blues in 1961, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie 1976, Opening Night 1977, and Love Streams from 1984, and on a 1962 episode of The Lloyd Bridges Show. The pair also acted together in The Webster Boy 1962 and Don Siegel's The Killers in 1964, on Burke's Law in 1964, and on a 1973 ABC movie, Nightside. Cassavetes, who died from liver disease in 1989 at age 59, was, quote, the older brother I never had and the closest male friend I ever had, end quote. Castle told Terry Gross in a 2006 NPR interview, quote, he was extremely influential in creating my career and guided me, end quote. The article does go on for quite a bit more. I think I first began recognizing Seymour Castle in a movie that I feel a little bit ashamed to admit. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember when the movie came out. I believe it was like 98 or 99. But it was a uh, it was a little mob comedy starring Seymour Castle as well as Burt Reynolds and Richard Dreyfus. it was a little movie called The Crew. And I believe it was about, it's been about 20 years or so since I've last seen it, but it's just about like these old men who live in a retirement home that I guess used to be in a mob or a gang or something together, and something happens to where they now have to do mob things again. They had to bring the crew back, I suppose. But you might have seen the poster for it. It has like a dead guy with one of those like yard flamingo ornament things like stuck in the guy's back and it's you see like the floating heads of Burt Reynolds, Seymour Castle, and um, Richard Dreyfus. Did you ever see The Crew, Matt? It seems like a movie that maybe you would have saw and it's kind of like a guilty pleasure of yours. I know the movie. I If I've seen it, it was in passing and I don't remember it, but I do remember like seeing trailers for it and stuff. So it's possible I've seen it, but I wouldn't swear to it. Right. I don't remember if it was good or if it was bad, underrated or what. I just know that it also came out within a week or two of the Clint Eastwood movie Space Cowboys. And that says nothing about the movie The Crew. Just an observation. So again, if you want to read more about Seymour Castle, please check out this HollywoodReporter.com article. Seymour Castle, Familiar Face in Cassavetti's Films, Dies at 84, written by Dwayne Burge. And the bit of news that I am interested in hearing Matt's thoughts on is brought to us by Deadline.com. Longtime partners Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, to go their separate ways. 
written by Mike Fleming Jr. And it says this exclusive, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay have mutually decided to branch out separately and refocus their creative efforts. This will wind down one of the longest creative partner relationships in town. The duo met when they were hired the same day on SNL in 1995. And 13 years ago, they formed with Chris Henchy, the multi-platform comedy-generating production company Gary Sanchez. Later branching into a female-centric offshoot, Gloria Sanchez. They also teamed on a bunch of comedy classic hit movies, including Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, and The Other Guys. McKay directed those films and Farrell starred in them. I'm told they remain close friends, but it is expected that their Paramount-based production labels will wind down over time. They will continue to see through their existing projects to completion and develop them with the attached producers. They will work together on their extensive slate of shared projects and will continue to support each other both personally and professionally. But they will explore new endeavors as well as their own individual projects, and it is expected they will each form new ventures to house those projects. They made the decision to split, and so the exact details are still being formulated. They've confirmed their split to deadline and issued this statement, quote, The last 13 years could not have been more enjoyable and satisfying for the two of us at Sanchez Productions. We give massive thanks to our incredible staff and executives and all the writers, directors, and actors we worked with through the years. The two of us will always work together creatively and always be friends, and we recognize we are lucky as hell to end this venture as such. End all quotes there. The article does go on for quite a bit more. And of course, I believe uh, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay also develop the Funnier Die website. They do. Yeah. They do indeed. They actually, they don't just develop it. They may not even really develop it fully anymore, but they did start it. Right. What was that famous little skit that what was that famous little skit oh, that the, with it, his it was daughter? his two-year-old daughter. It was McKay's two-year-old daughter um, being the foul-mouthed landlady coming after Will Ferrell for rent. That's right. He was doing that semi-pro movie about that time, so he has like a crazy pubis afro. Yeah. yeah. But what do you think about this? The article makes it sound like something happened, tension between the two, but obviously I doubt that's the case. It's just, you know, sometimes you want to move on and do something else. I really do think, I mean, McKay has kind of taken a more, uh, how do we say this nicely? Professional. A more upward career trajectory than Will Ferrell, right? Um, and not in a, not in a Will Ferrell's worthless kind of way, but to the point that McKay is doing projects that Ferrell's not going to be a part of. Farrell's not going to have any creative input. There's not even really any executive level stuff for him to do. And he's going to want to do those kinds of things on his end. And so it only makes sense that since there's no way for them to, to physically work together under the same production house, that they just go ahead and close the one production house and then open their own. So now McKay does his own thing. And Farrell can do his own thing. They don't have to worry about any kind of crossing of the streams, as it were. And then, of course, anytime they do get a chance to work together and they want to work together, they will be able to. I mean, that doesn't preclude that possibility. It just now, it lets, um, 
certain executive functions, certain creative functions, uh, happen where it's going to be all McKay and it's going to be all Farrell. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So, uh, I don't, I, I, I truly don't think it's acrimonious. I mean, but if you think about pretty much after the big short happened, McKay was kind of just at a different level of his career. So he's just in a different strata. Totally. Yeah. So. And we all knew that Adam McKay was kind of destined for bigger, better, greater things. I mean, that's not saying that Talladega Nights isn't a comedic masterpiece or Anchorman is a comedic masterpiece. I effing love Anchorman and Talladega Nights. I just uh, rewatched Talladega Nights maybe like two years ago whenever Netflix picked it up. And I loved it more so than when I saw it at the movie theater when it first came out. I thought the movie aged well. There's some both great comedic and even like slightly more touching, heartfelt, you know, moments brought out by Adam McKay. So, you know, even then I kind of knew, you know, I, I have a feeling he's going to branch out from these Will Ferrell comedies and do more stuff. So it just sounds like maybe he's wanting to do more of that stuff and not have to be tied down to that gary sanchez label so yeah it is what it is i guess um that's pretty much end of an era as it were and there's a lot more left to that article so please check it out longtime partners will ferrell adam mckay to go their separate ways written by mike fleming jr via deadline hollywood right on okay and while you were talking about the deadline article i happened to find Literally just now from bloodingdisgusting.com by way of John Squire's Beetlejuice sequel has been shelved and Tim Burton doubts it'll ever actually happen. This is a very short article. I will read the first half. It says, In theaters now, Tim Burton and Michael Keaton have reteamed for Disney's Dumbo. But what about that sequel to Beetlejuice that has been teased for many, many years now? Last we heard, Warner Brothers was still actively developing a new Beetlejuice movie, but it's been a while since we've been provided with any sort of update, and this latest one isn't good. As reported by USA Today, Warner Brothers is reportedly no longer developing Beetlejuice 2, with the studio spokeswoman telling the site, quote... The project isn't in active development, end quote. When Burton himself was asked what was going on with the sequel, he replied, quote, nothing, nothing. I don't know. I doubt it. And they have added in their own brackets will happen, end quote. So my dreams are crushed again. I just thought I would share that with y'all. And now you know. (laughs) I have nothing else to say. I just, I saw that. I was sad. And wanted to make other people sad. Good job, Matthew. Good job. First, you just make me sad by having me relive the bitchy chick BMW conversation. And now, no Beetlejuice 2. It's probably a blessing in disguise, really, you know? It's like Dumb and Dumber 2 was pretty bad. The last thing we needed was Beetlejuice 2 to be not great. Yeah. I don't know. It's a different caliber of actor, though. It's a different caliber of... Well, that's not fair to Jeff Daniels, and even to a certain degree, Jim Carrey. It's a different caliber, different style of movie Beetlejuice is versus Dumb and Dumber. So, anyway. All right, well, I guess now that we kind of got our impromptu news segment out of the way, would you like to go ahead and break into our copycat throwdown? Yeah. Well, then let's do it. It's... It's... 
The The Copy Copy Cat Cat Throwdown Throwdown That's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown Well, that's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown Stop it Stop it No, no, seriously, stop it Oh, right, like, stop repeating? Stop repeating, right Oh, uh, okay I'm gonna gonna kick your ass ass. Throwdown All right this week's edition of Copycat Throwdown, we've got 1989's Pet Cemetery versus 2019's Pet Cemetery, and I assume we're just keeping in our theme of doing things chronologically, and we'll just start with the 89. Of course. What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is Church all right? Why, Judge? I have no reasons. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judge? What we did, Lois, was a secret. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts best not thought of. Something really bad. You're thinking of putting him up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. Come back to me, Gage. Come back to us. Paramount Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. All right. Pet Cemetery, 1989, a horror film adaptation of Stephen King's 1983 novel of the same name. This one is directed by Mary Lambert and stars Dale Midkiff, Fred Gwynn, Denise Crosby, Brad Greenquist, Michael Lombard, Michael Hughes, or Miko Hughes, and Blaze Beardall. This one is, of course, well, the one with the creepy kid who comes back to life and is, like I said, I want to play with you. Um, the, the line that still to this day sends chills down my spine. Boys have a penis. Girls have a vagina. <laughs> That's the At same least kid, he right? doesn't say that in this movie. Yes. I believe so. But if he's yes, coming at is. you with a freaking knife, that would be frightening. Yeah. I guess there'd be one less I don't know. Maybe he's, he, he wants le- less penises in the world. I have no idea. Anyway, so, yeah, what we have here, we've got uh, Creed family. They move, uh, in, this mo- in this movie, they move from Chicago to Ludlow, Maine, um, where Lewis is the dad. He has been offered a job there to be, like, the head of medicine. And... Much like the, in, in the larger themes of the book and both movies, um, their, their new home is next to some property and at the back of the property is a pet cemetery, but the actual pet cemetery is in front of a kind of, uh, this kind of barrier, if you will, that lets them go beyond into Indian burial ground where people can bury things and they'll come back but they don't come back like they were when they were alive the first time uh shenanigans ensue it's a stephen king novel death destruction just general 
unhappiness and malaise is what you can expect from this story. Should we go and just say spoiler alert? Because I really don't know how we can not talk about this movie without... Yeah, I think that, I think just going forward, ladies and gentlemen, yeah, absolutely spoiler alert. Because there's, yeah, there's no way to talk about this movie without spoiling it. And moreover, once you know the plot of this movie, then you are clearly going to know the plot of the next movie. It's just details that have been kind of tweaked between the two films. With, with this particular version... One thing that I like about this one is that they really kind of, how do I say this? They got the stereotypes right with this because <laughs> it's, it, they did. And I mean, but I mean that in a nice way because it's not technically, it's not typecasting because no one's, no, no one's being typecast, but they, they did get the stereotypes right. And when you're dealing with this kind of a film, if the only way you can be genuine about the characters when you write them this way is if you get the stereotypes right and not for nothing but miko hughes um you know he he is only like four years old or whatever when this movie is being filmed or, or made four or five years old and he's playing like a three or four year old kid um so it so it works that he's kind of this doll-like cherub thing with the cute little voice who wants to always do things with you. It, that works. It is Maine in the late 80s where you've got yuppie people, what would have been called yuppies back then, kind of taking over. And so you've got Fred Gwynn, who is your kind of cantankerous, uh, recalcitrant, uh, you know man who hides in the back and almost sounds a little bit like the Pepperidge Farm guy, but not quite, but enough. Oh, really? I think he goes balls deep into the Pepperidge Farm voice. Well, I mean, it, it, but it's, again, it's genuine. It's not, the stereotype is there, but it's done well. Sure. And so it's not a laughable caricature, right? It's a stereotype, but not a caricature. And I think, again, that's why I, that's why I say, you know, the, the Pepperidge Farm taste of cookies, but he does it in a, in a very genuine way. Um, you know, Denise Crosby is this, you know, is a mom who is, uh, she's trying to be the good housewife, but she kind of overplays her hand a little bit in, in terms of being that feminine housewife. Uh, but she wants to be the strong 80s woman as well. There's, there's a lot of stereotypical behavior in all of these characters. And so what the stereotypical stereotypes have to rely on is a strong horror narrative, which exists in this movie. I think that, I, I think that while the horror narrative is there, and if you do a little bit of digging into the novel, this is one of the few novels that Stephen King literally did not want to publish. He had kind of written it in a bit of a dark time in his life. And when he was done with the book, he was just kind of like, this shit's too dark even for me. And he shelved it. And the only reason it got published was because he he was at the end of a contract and needed a fourth book. And 
uh, I can't remember if it was his agent or somebody basically convinced him, you know what, dude, just drop the book and go because this this way you'll fulfill your contract and we can move on. And so he did. And then the book kind of took off. And so he still considers this one of his scariest novels. And if you think about the actual novel itself and the story and how it goes, I mean, it is a just... It's, it's a truly consummate horror tale. There, there is no happy ending to be had here. And it just gets darker and darker and darker and no one seems to be able to find a way out. And in an interesting economic crossover, this is the horror equivalent. Pet Cemetery is the horror equivalent of the sunken cost fallacy. You feel like you're so far down this road. You've invested so much that you can't stand the loss and you keep doubling down instead of walking away. And it's a really interesting lesson that Pet Cemetery teaches in this regard. Um, yeah, so everything, of course, falls apart. I think it's kind of an interesting, uh, plot hole, I guess. No, I don't know. It's kind of weird. So the kid, poor Miko, gets plowed by a truck, right? Maximum overdrive, just Totally maximum overdrives him, right? Shoes fall off, right? Like the shoes fucking hit the ground. <laughs> uh, and yet he comes back and he's not all crushed and shit. But Denise Crosby comes back and she looks like a fucking nightmare. With the pus dripping out of the face and all that kind of stuff. What's up with that? I don't know. It's a great way to end the movie. It is. It is, but I don't know. I, uh, it's a, it, it is a fun, I, I, I don't necessarily think it's aged the greatest, but it's definitely still a thrilling ride, even 30 years later. Um, I mean, I still like the movie and it, it is interesting. I like the themes. Um, but yeah, there's just too many stereotypical characters. The writing, well, I mean, it's a Stephen King movie. And so the writing, as we know from this era of Stephen King, usually wasn't the strongest. But the horror narrative is, is solid and the, and the stereotypes work because they're well done. So, I mean, it's still, it's still a good flick. I mean, it's not the best flick, but it's still a solid flick. Oh, let's say it's a solid flick. I don't know. What, what, what are you thinking there, Tim? Well, I have a couple questions. Did you read the book? And where, like, what was going on with Stephen King when he wrote it? Okay, this is remember? one of the few Stephen King novels that I actually have not read. I went through a kick when I was in high school uh, where I literally started reading his novels. I would, you know, I read Carrie. Right. And I watched Carrie. I read Firestarter and then I watched Firestarter and so on and so forth. Right. Um, read the stand, watch the stand. <laughs> um, and I actually never got around to reading Pet Cemetery. I don't know why. I remember reading Cujo, watched Cujo. Don't know how I managed to jump over because Cujo's after Pet Cemetery. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I managed to do that. And I think both of them take place in the same town, if I remember correctly. Oh, uh, it's been so long. It, it really has been so long. But at any rate, yeah. So I um, 
So this is one of the few ones that I haven't, that I haven't read, but he actually, okay. So basically this, the, the impetus for the book was he was living in an area where dogs kept getting run over by trucks on the highway next to his house or down the major thoroughfare. And his daughter's cat was killed. And so he wrote a story about burying the cat, but then he decided to, to actually build the story where they buried the cat, but it came back fundamentally wrong. And then he just kind of built it from there. Right. That's, that's kind of where that is from, from the, from the novels aspect. I, I, I don't, yeah. So I guess that answers that question. I'm not sure. What, what other question did you have, sir? Uh, that's pretty much what it. Questions. <laughs> oh, okay. We're good. Well, like, I really like Pet Cemetery. Uh, when I was just pulling some actor information, I took a look at the, Rotten Tomatoes score of the film. Luckily, I saw Pet Cemetery before Rotten Tomatoes was a thing, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it ever since. Currently, it sits at, and I'm talking about the 1989 original book adaption, it currently sits at 50% for a tomato meter score and 59% for the audience score. It kind of baffles my mind. Has Pet Cemetery aged well? Well, it's dated. The clothing is dated. Uh, the first half of the movie, up until the story gets set in motion, the movie is shot like a late 1980s, early 1990s made-for-TV movie. It, there's a lot of bright colors. There's that really cheesy music. You have your typical 1980s mom and dad. They drive the typical 1980s car. They live in this big, beautiful house on property. And there's the beautiful town right down the road. And it's like crazy movie family camaraderie that doesn't ever happen in real life. I, I think, I guess. I don't know. I've never really witnessed this personally. But man, once the movie gets going and once his son dies automatically you feel crushed i mean you see how crushing it is for the father and the mother you can't help but feel bad for them and especially the father i wasn't the biggest fan of the mom of denise crosby but i thought dale midkiff did a very good job embodying that trauma I'll talk about it more once we get into the newer Pet Cemetery, but this is something that the newer Pet Cemetery didn't really get into because the death of the cat is supposed to set things into motion. And that leads into the death of the son. That's heartbreaking for him, and he's willing to do anything to bring his son back. Well, when he does... He doesn't really regret it. He wants it to work out. So he just becomes a little delusional. But then he has to make that decision to try to kill the son again. Then there's the, then there, then there's the wife. You know, his last hope of keeping his family together, his wife. And then look what happens to his wife. And so at the end of the movie, you see him sitting at the kitchen table. And then the wife walks in and she's all dead with the pus and all that stuff. You, the audience, you're just looking at her and you're like, Jesus Christ, look at this hole, dude, that you dug yourself into. How are you going to get out of this? Well, by this point in the movie, of the story, he is far gone. And all he sees is his wife standing there. And of course, the ending is very ambiguous as they're hugging and she pulls out the knife. And of course, you know, she's going to stab him. They do kind of the same thing in the remake. 
I just really liked the atmosphere and the tone of Pet Cemetery 1989. It's very creepy, it's very spooky, and there is actually quite a bit of dread in there because you feel for these characters. You want to see them succeed. You don't want to see their lives go into the sewer because they're good people. So it's that dramatic film where it's just so dramatic and depressing that whenever something bad happens, the horror, I guess, is just amplified because you just care about the characters so much. I do like this film quite a bit, and I was very much looking forward to the 2019 version, so I will stop right there. Let's just go right into it. Switching gears to 2019's Pet Cemetery. So many trees. It's beautiful, right? It's definitely not Boston. Here we go. Okay, so what do you think? Wow, this whole place is ours? I even got him to throw in a whole forest as a new backyard. It was a myth. Kids used to dare each other, go into the woods at night. They knew the power of that place. They feared it. Those woods belong to something else. The ground is bad. God! It may be just some crazy folk tale. But there is something up in those woods. There's something that brings things back. Sometimes dead is better. All right. American Supernatural Horror Film. This one, of course, is directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer. Uh, stars Jason Clark, Amy Simetz, and John Lithgow. Uh, along with, uh, Hugo Lavoie and Lucas Lavoie as the young little boy and Jete Lawrence or Jeet Jete. I think it's Jete Lawrence as Ellie, the little girl. Um, so this one, has the creeds moving from Boston, which I believe is actually, this one is uh, a little bit closer to the book. Um, in, in some, in several aspects. And then of course they do a little bit of fun switching in this particular film. Uh, and they, and they really do play with you. If you know the 89 movie, they play with you a lot in terms of trying to tease you into thinking they're going to do things uh, similarly, only to do them vastly differently. Um, I So in this one, again, it's from Boston to Ludlow. Uh, there's no more stereotypes. We actually have solid character work being done. Uh, I think that they the writing of the characters was much better this time around unfortunately what hurts this one i think is uh cinematography is funky and then lighting there's the the it's the way they're framing the shots this time it's the fact that they're 
that they're teasing the truck like every 10 seconds unnecessarily. Um, they're doing things to, instead of to build tension, to just trick you into thinking there's a jump scare or try to ease you and then give you a random jump scare generally in the form of a truck driving down the road. Um, I like in this one that they actually uh, have the daughter is the one that gets killed this time. Ellie's the one that, that gets killed. Um, I think it's uh, it, it adds a different bit of depth to the story. But the... Again, the 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 issue the, only, the the biggest issue is that I think that they're try they were just trying too hard to play with people and instead of throw a pay a little homage or throw a little bit of an Easter egg or two in there if you had read the book or if you've seen the previous movie and or both they just tried a little too hard to make you think it was one thing. Not a bait and switch exactly, but to try and feed into the 89 movie just so they could go, ah, but we're different here. And the thing is, they didn't have to do that because the character work I felt in this one is vastly superior. Not just because they didn't go with stereotypes because they didn't need to, but because, I mean, Jason Clark, he can be downright freaking scary when he wants to be. And... Sure. Yeah. Same thing with uh, Jete Lawrence. She is really good at being creepy. You wouldn't think that from a nine-year-old, but man, she did all right. Um, I thought John Lithgow did a good job in terms of using a character that in the movie version is kind of a plot device. This is an important distinction here. Um, Judd is a plot device in both films. In the book... It is a better setup. So Judd is randomly touched or whatever. Um, and more touched in the 19, 2019 versus 1989, but still similarly touched. And, and he's the one who kind of communicates what's going on in terms of what you can do with the cat. In this one, Judd is touched. He, he's been alone for a while. And Ellie, you know, as he says, got into my heart. And, she, you know, and, and I just couldn't bear to see her unhappy. In the book, Judd is still married uh, to his wife, Norma. She has a heart attack and Lewis saves her. He keeps her from dying. This is the bonding element and the reason why Judd goes out of his way to help them when it comes to the cat and starts them down the road. Um, so I think Lithgow understands what his role is. And so he knows that his character is kind of a plot device. And I think he plays it as best as he can, knowing his character is a plot device. And it works. I think is know that I, um, and so, I don't know, I, I am kind of surprised to a certain extent that this one has got a 59% on Rotten Tomatoes. I had an absolute blast watching this movie. I thought it was great fun. Aside from my nitpicks about annoyances, I really think this one is vastly superior and much, and just much more solidly constructed. Um, even though I have the issues that I have with it, 
I still think that on the whole, this is the better film. It's not that you can't have a good time with 89 Pet Cemetery, but again, you're looking at typecast, or not typecasting, you're looking at stereotypes in a, in, in, with some poor character writing, but a good, solid, uh, horror narrative. You're, com- you're, you're combining that with, as Tim pointed out, this kind of 80s, 90s made for TV feel. Here, we have a straight up true horror flick that's not afraid to try and grab you by the you know what's and make you hang on. I don't agree with the way they try and, you know, get your attention um to a greater degree, but I think that they really stick the darker elements. They stick the landing on those darker elements overall. And I enjoyed this one more. I like this one more. I could see myself buying this one when it comes out on Blu-ray, 4K, what have you. And I personally am all about this one being the winner. I mean, good God, they, the, the kid lets them come and get him from the car and they're, and you know what's going to happen to this poor little kid. And he does it anyway. I mean, I thought that the movie ended on such a little, with just with a little, bloop, bloop, you know, where he unlocks the car and lets him in. Oh, man, I thought that was just perfect. Little Cage is going to die. Or Gage. Yeah. Gage a cage. Yes, Little Gage. Yeah, Gage in a cage. For me, the winner is 2019's Pet Cemetery. But, Tim, what what do you have to say, sir? I went into the remake with high hopes. I really wanted to love this film. I thought it was a good film. I do like how this touches more on the Indian burial grounds. It gives you a little bit more of a background as to what exactly this land is. You see this character, this monster in the book. It's like the the death character or some kind of Greek character of death. I forget what it was, but it's like this tree monster. At the start of the third act of the film, Lewis Creed takes his daughter out to that burial site to bury her, and he looks over and you see that tree character come out of a tree and look at him. So for a split second, I kind of thought, shit, is this going to turn to a monster movie? It does not, but that was a nice little touch, I thought. So even the Indian burial ground, you know, the monsters in the woods are trying to get him to stop doing this because they even know what will happen and what does eventually happen. I do believe this is around when the film missteps, when it heads into that third act. There is a lot that should come out of the character of Judd and of the father. I didn't really buy the fact that Judd was touched by Ellie. I really didn't see that switch in him. Like Maybe he was a little bit of a cantankerous old man or something, and then her being so upbeat and nice and sweet, that changes him. You never really got the sense that he really needed any changing. And then with the father, you really need to see him get beaten down, failing at trying to do something what he thinks is good. And really, it's something sick, twisted, demented, and awful. It starts off promising with the father being upset and everything. But then when the movie switches into its made-up climax, where it becomes more action-y, more about the flair and the violence, they lost sight of character, of hitting the beats and nailing the tone of the film. Because, yes, it's a very ominous ending. You know, they leave it very ambiguous. 
But think about how much more impactful that would have been if you were just left with your throat being in your stomach to where like that was the icing. That was the cherry on top of this horrific cake, you know? So I just felt the movie made a lot of missteps, but it was still okay. And it was a fine time at the movies. I just wanted there to be more better character work from especially the father. And I just wish they didn't take these familiar horror steps, I suppose, that we've been seeing a lot like with the most recent rendition of It. So my pick for this copycat throwdown is in fact the 1989 Pet Cemetery. I just felt the 1989 film had more to it. Matt, I'm guessing you felt worse for John Lithgow's Judd than you did for Herman Munsters? Yes, I was not. Um, I think that the terror from the 1989 version comes from the kid. I think that the true terror from the 2019 version comes from Judd. So it's not that Fred Gwynn didn't do a good job. It's just I think that given the context of the situation, uh, John Lithgow, John Lithgow's play on it was good and and uh, you know I, I don't know i i just had i guess i just had a better time with it and that is okay we're, we're just we're just split and you're gonna have to go see it folks to make your decision on which version you like better yeah and stephen king again did write the 1989 version i i don't know if maybe that got me more since it still had a lot of his horror beats Go see it. That ends our special copycat throwdown there for it uh, for this week. Next week, um, we have got a another crazy, crazy copycat throwdown. We're trying to do all the Hellboy movies we possibly can. <laughs> uh, we've got 2004's Hellboy versus uh, Hellboy animated Sword of Storms from 2006 versus Hellboy animated Blood and Iron from 2007 versus Hellboy 2019. Whew, that's a lot of it's a lot of versus action going on in this copycat throwdown. We will see how it all turns out in the winter for that. And so, without further ado, I guess it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Right, 
Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can call us combo board that information, Superhighway, and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite song, Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Fred Gwynn, I get to say this. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be a portrait painter. As I got to be older, I realized that as a portrait painter, I wouldn't be able to support a goldfish. Take your cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. 